It's time for Declare Your Independence with Ernest Hancock. Believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us. But if we are to be prepared for it, we must first shed our fear of it. I stand here without fear because I remember. I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here! Let us make them remember. We are not afraid! Oh, we're not afraid here and declare your independence of me. Ernest Hancock from Phoenix, Arizona, broadcasting from the BEA, beautiful studios of Freedoms of the Nest, freedomsphoenix.com. And we're going to take on uh, all the issues. Well, what would libertarians say about um, uh, once I write a book, I put it out there, I don't own it no more. You know, or you bought the book, now do you own it? And when the word's on it. And what about uh, music, video? DVDs, you know, intellectual property. This has always been the issue. You know, I haven't made up my mind yet. And I'm a, we'll see if I can make it up today because we have someone who's going to tell me all about it. Stefan Kinsella. Now, I want to get this out right up uh, at the top here. So you guys, you want to know how to get this guy. Kinsella is spelled K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A. KinsellaLaw.com. Now, if you go to KinsellaLaw.com, you can see a lot of good stuff on there. Now, I want to get right to it. Stephen Kinsella has published many articles relating to patents, private property rights, intellectual property. You find them on Mises web pages on Lou Rockwell. You know, it's a, and and he came to my attention from one of our readers. Man, just went off on it. He said, "Oh, you got to read this." He's author of the book Against Intellectual Property. Stephen Kinsella, I got you there. I'm here, Ernest. Nice to be here. You know, Stefan, it's a pleasure to have you. And and this is a I, I've done shows years past on this issue, and I, I and I don't remember I was ever comfortable enough to be able to explain the position from a libertarian standpoint to someone else. And I'm hoping you're going to help me with it. This is what I have done. I was so interested in doing this show that I didn't read your article on purpose. Well, that's okay. We have it all figured out now. We can, we can poop it out to you really easily. No, no, no. Let me tell you why. What happens is, is when you read uh, articles like this, I, I'm sure you, because you had such an impact on my readers, that they were like, you know, oh, this guy, he's it. This is it. And I was afraid that if I read it, it'd be like you and I uh, talking about a movie that we both saw and the audience hadn't seen. So, sure. I'm, what, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you know the fresh perspective. I, I held. I'm, I'm, I'm guarantee you, as soon as we talk, I'm going to read it. <laughs> right? Okay, no problem. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to just be totally fresh on this issue, and let's define what we're going to be talking about first. Intellectual property. Define that for me in the audience. Well, intellectual property is a term used by primarily by people who support legislation or laws that give you rights in intangible things such as patterns of information, such as um, the pattern of information that represents a novel or a painting 
or the idea that represents a an invention, like a method of doing something, or the way you arrange uh, your own property to make it do something useful, like a like a new mousetrap, uh, or something like that. So basically, these people believe that the government should step in and grant rights in the way things are arranged or the way that people use their property. Okay, now, now I understand. Let's go ahead and go back in time. Let's go ahead and go to a time where there wasn't um, government, and, uh, you know, Og invented the wheel. Okay. okay? Then uh, I, I, I have to see there's some time between Og inventing the wheel and us getting to where there's some government entity saying, uh, uh, you can't use the wheel unless you pay him some money to use his wheel. So sure. okay, I, well, when did that happen? Um, first of all, let's, I mean, uh, in my opinion, true libertarians don't even believe in the state. They believe in government in terms of rules but not the state. But even some uh, minarchist libertarians believe in some minimal government. But uh, the most they believe in is basically a system of rules that protect your rights to use things that otherwise would be fought over. Right? These are called rivalrous goods or scarce resources. So in other words, if we lived in a world where there was magic and you could just look at your neighbor's car or house and blink your eyes and conjure up another one and make your own, there would be no problem because you would have your own house. You wouldn't be taking your neighbor's house. But in the world we live in, things are scarce or rivalrous, these material goods in the real world. We need to use these things to survive and to live, obviously. But the problem is only one guy gets to use these things at a time. And unless you have rules and everyone's fighting over them and you have no property rules at all, and you have eternal war of all against all and the kind of anarchy that, that people disparage and fight. So we have rules that say who gets to use these things that otherwise uh, – only one person could use at a time, or people would have to fight over. Okay, let's go back. I, you know, we gotta go back in time some more because mm-hmm. I'm I'm going. These rules were uh, tradition. You know, they're passed down by songs. I mean, you know, I want to know where these rules came from. What's the first uh, recollection that you have in history to where you have some kind of rule? I mean, I know what the rule used to be. It's all the kings or it's all well, gods. Well, and... let, let, let's, let's think about just animals, animals that have no sense of morals whatsoever. Even a dog recognizes his bone and his bowl of food. If you approach too close, he starts growling because you're approaching his territory. There's sort of an innate or a natural connection between a person or a thing that uses things and the things he's using or possessing at a given time. And, of course, in the past and without the government, and there's many of studies on this, many of intellectual studies and, and articles and things like this, about how people come up with rules on their own to live peacefully among each other. And then, and then these civilized people, which is the bulk of society, it has to be for society to survive, of course, they come up with ways to deal with the occasional person who's an outlaw, who doesn't respect rights, who basically is like an animal or a force of nature. So you always have to deal with things that are, that are going to uh, you know, be a threat to you. But people that want to get along, people that want to be civilized, they want cooperation, they want to help each other, but they want to be able to succeed in the world, they tend to agree on these rules. And even in the age of kings, there was no such thing as a systemized recognition of rights to these intellectual things or rights to tangible things horses and carriages and castles and food and things like this okay when did it happen though i mean when did we start in the u.s constitution they start talking about promoting the sciences and arts you know you got a problem right there but um patents and all this other stuff where did that concept come from well so let's talk about it for a second what you have now is you have now everyone is in today's world, and libertarians should be especially uh, 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 acute to this, in today's world, 
everyone, even lawyers, even libertarians, are used to thinking of law as what the, the legislature enacts or passes. Right? In other words, when you say a law, people think some kind of written, printed bill that a legislature has enacted. Whereas two, three, four hundred, five hundred years ago, law was not considered to be legislature. Legislation was considered to be sort of a, a, a rare thing that every now and then came in and that sort of invaded the province of what true law was. True law was with, when various people, experts, judges, uh, philosophers, the common man, basically recognized what justice was. Okay, and justice arose from custom, from tradition, from dealings with people, from repeated rulings, from contract, from agreements, things like this. And it was sort of a, a gradually accumulated doctrine of justice-related knowledge. So this is what a lot of people refer to as common law? Exactly, common law. And uh, it's sort of a misnomer in the, in the sense that people equate that with English law. In, in matter of fact, the, the ancient Roman law 2,000 years ago was basically a decentralized common law type of system. So in fact, the original common Roman law and the, and the English common law are similar in, in their form, and they both resulted in fairly libertarian uh, bodies of law that protected property rights. Um, now, what happens is nowadays, just as people see law as being what the government decrees as, as being law, which is a positivist conception of law um, and a legislation conception of law, they also will defend, even libertarians will defend IP based upon natural law principles. They'll say that, well, we have a natural right to our bodies and things that we find and, and buy and create, and also we have a natural right to intellectual things that we, that we create. But the interesting thing is the origin of IP rights, unlike the origin of tan the rights in tangible things like land, which is a natural right, the origin is not at all a natural rights. Even in the Constitution, the founders, Jefferson, these guys had big misgivings about IP law. They did it, but they explicitly recognized that it is not a natural right. It did not follow from Locke's theories about natural rights. It was only a prudential thing done, sort of on utilitarian grounds, to try to you know, give incentives to create things they thought would be good for the country. It was sort of an early type of tinkering, like we do now on a widespread scale. But if you go back in time, okay, and now the funny thing is the advocates of IP law, like the libertarians who advocate IP law, they will vociferously deny that it's a monopoly granted by the government. Okay, okay a monopoly granted by the government. Let's go ahead and leave it there because I don't want to lose our place. You're, 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 on a, you're on a good rant here, man. I need, I need you to pick up right where you left off, would I'll you do please? It. Okay, when we come back here on declare your independence, I got, I got a million questions, and hopefully there are a lot of the questions that you would ask. So we'll go ahead and we'll take calls late in this hour, maybe, because I don't want to get off on, I want to get all the information from my guest, Stefan Kinsella. We'll be right back. It's time for Declare Your Independence with Ernest Hancock. And I went, I'm going into uh, uh, almost 60 seconds. I'm in violation of intellectual property rights. I'm going to jail. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Well, we're going to find out. You know, my guest is Stephen 
Kinsella, Kinsella, K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A, law.com. You're going to want to check this guy out because I've been looking for someone just like Stefan to be able to help me out. Well, you left off. You're talking about the formation of the country and the Constitution, and Jefferson and the boys were kind of, eh, this intellectual property right thing is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a little bit of credence here just to get along, but, you know, we're not big fans of it. So go ahead and pick it up where you left off. Well, I'm trying to walk you through how sort of my formation process went, because I'm a libertarian, and I was actually, I'm a patent lawyer as well, so, you know, I was actually trying to defend the idea at first, and uh, I, I'm trying to show you how I came to it and how the best way to look at it is. I mean, Please. listen, you talk to advocates of IP law and you say, look, it's just a government-granted privilege or monopoly. They will vociferously deny this. But where did these things arise from? And the primary forms of it that are problems are copyright and patent, which are federal legislation. Okay. Now, copyright originated in 1623 in England in a statute called, wait for it, the statute of monopolies. Now, back then, governments were a lot more honest, right? They didn't they didn't hide what they did. As I think in the 40s, we had a Department of War, right? And what did it do? It waged war. Now, what do we call it? We call Department, it Department of Defense. Of, you know, <laughs> Department of Defense, and all these, we have all these cute modern euphemisms. And it's kind of sad to see libertarians retreating to these things. But it was clearly a monopoly grant. Now, where do patents come from? Patents protect inventions. If you remember what patents were originally, you know, the king would grant a patent to some supplicant, someone who was a favored person or a noble or a lord who wanted to be the only guy who could make bread in this town or the only guy who had the right to sell, you know, this type of thing at the port. So it was just, it was mercantilism writ large. Now, what the founders of our country did was um, they knew and they admitted explicitly, if you read Jefferson's writings, they admitted that there is no natural right to um, inventions and copyrights and things like this. They say, we're doing it prudentially only. And in fact, in the Constitution, they don't require IP law to be mandated. They only give Congress the authority to, to do it if they want to, and only for limited times, which should show you right there the distinction between real property and between uh, this artificial privilege. Okay, you've got to help me out. I'm not as learned when you say mm-hmm. prudentially. Define that word. Well, what I mean is, um, so the founders were thinking that, look, we're going to have a new government we're, we're, we're forming, and we have all these you know, authors are bitching about you know, their royalties, royalties and things like this. Why don't we give Congress the power to grant them a temporary monopoly that will give them the right to get some kind of royalties for a little while uh, and give them a little incentive to produce these books, okay, things like this. In other words, the motivation behind these laws is completely utilitarian or wealth maximization-based. It was prudential in the sense that, the government was trying to engineer things. It was trying to it just, just like it does now when it, when it has all these government grants to uh, favored causes. Which makes my point on this show often: the Constitution, just how it all started, man. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll, I'll be honest with you. In, in the last several years, I've I've come to really become down on the Constitution. I'm really tired of of American libertarians and thinking of the original American founding as some kind of proto-libertarian paradise. The, Amer- the original American founding was not libertarian. Uh, I would say not at all. It was basically a constitutional coup. The Constitution was a centralizing document to seize power, and it has resulted in what we have now. So I don't know how libertarians can think it was a great thing. No, I'm with you, brother. Keep going. So, so basically what you have is you have the simple situation that for us to live among each other in peace and prosperity – 
Okay, now I'll get a little bit abstract for a second. I don't know how familiar you are, your listeners are, with the, sort of the, the, the Austrian economics idea of, of human action. Okay, it's a very simple idea, and the idea is that all humans act in the world. And now, what does it mean to act? It means you look around and you see what you want to accomplish. That's your goal, or your end. And you see what means you have at your disposal to accomplish these ends. That is, you know, something you can choose or act on that will accomplish your end. Okay, and then you use the information in your head to consult, uh, to decide what to do. So the means that you choose, like, you know, let's say you take a bowl and some eggs and some flour to make a cake. Okay, these are the means that you need to make the cake. The cake is your goal. The flour or the bowl are your capital goods or your ingredients. You need to own those things because if someone else takes them, then you can't make your cake, right? Mm -hmm. uh, these things are scarce resources or rivalrous goods. They're material goods. They're tangible things that only one person can benefit from at a time. And if we don't have rules on how to use these things, then there's going to be fighting over them or no one will get to use them and no cakes will be made at all. But if property rights are assigned, then people can use them peacefully because they know who owns these things. Now, you and I could both make a cake at the same time using our own ingredients using the same recipe. This recipe is information that guides our knowledge, or guides our decisions. So you can see that we don't even have a conflict over this recipe or this information. You can use it, I can use it at the same time. There's never even a possibility of conflict over it, so property rights don't arise even in the first place. So that's sort of a natural rights, libertarian perspective in property rights. That's the distinction between ideas or information, things that guide your actions, and means, which are things that you have to use in your action that only one person can use at a time, and things that we have to have property rights in. What? You know, you have to, you have, oh, okay, property rights, not intellectual property rights. So my thing is, is that the intellectual property right is like the owning of an idea, you know, yeah. the owning of um, an idea that's put on paper. I mean, if I buy a book... Well, I, you know, it's mine. You know, I bought it, it's mine. But now with digital electronics and, you know, for music and videos and all this and the pirating of, you know, Lord knows what, you have the, the concept that, okay, I can replicate my cake, you know, uh, by pushing a digital button and I get uh, whatever it is that I, you know, the book reproduced on somebody's Kindle. So right, but, but yeah, I mean, let's suppose you have a bicycle, okay? Yeah. I, I, I covet your bicycle and I want it. Now, if I take your bicycle... Why do you object to this? Because you don't have your bicycle anymore, right? I mean, yeah. I'm taking it from you. That's no, 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 no. I'm agreeing with you. No, I'm making the point that you're not taking anything from somebody when you replicate this by pushing a button. Correct. They get and they get to use whatever they want. They got their book. You know, basically, copying is not theft. This is the point that libertarians need to emphasize and realize. Okay, well, I'm, what I'm looking at is the origination of this. What you're saying is that. Yeah, it's kind of this. They just made it up. They just made it. It's not really a fundamental, real no. property right in anything. It's right. just because they just made a law saying that you you can't. Right. So I get your question now. So 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 here here's how I would answer that. The, how they made it up was there are two different basic ways of justifying legal policy or, or or laws. Right. One is the natural rights way, which I adhere to, and many libertarians adhere to. Another is a sort of pragmatic. You know, way that we come up with laws that do the, the the most good for the most number, which you could say is utilitarian or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I can go through the different arguments for natural rights theories of IP, but even the originators of this 
and the Constitution didn't think it was a natural right. They basically said, if you let the government grant these temporary monopoly privileges to certain people who apply for them, then society will be better off overall. Now, the thinking was this. Okay, in society A without copyright, let's say, there's you know, X amount of wealth. Okay, in society B, we have copyright law, and now we have more books being written because of the incentive effect. And it does restrict people's liberty a little bit because they can't copy these books for a while, etc. But we're all better off because there's more books being written. That's the original idea, that we're better off because there's more innovation being stimulated by these laws. Okay, I understand the argument, and we're going to get into more details about that very argument. If you do not have a financial incentive for you to create things that other people are willing to buy, would you create them? Would they get created? Are we better off because we have this intellectual property? I don't know. I always side on. Freedom's the answer. We'll be right back. Roads? It's the Ernest Hancock Show. Where we're going, there aren't any roads. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. Oh, where we go from there? I don't know. Well, my guest, Stefan Kinsella, is going to help me out. Where do we go without the rules, the borders, the boundaries, a world without controls? Well, part of that control is all about trying to control us into being productive for whatever they think we should be, which is, you know, you can start off right there. I mean, we had discussion. We were talking about some of the provisions in uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. The first thing it does is gives them the ability to tax me, and I said we don't need to even go any further. So, you know, I'd, so I, I get it. Well, one of the parts in there is also to promote uh, the arts and sciences and patents and all this kind of stuff, and I'm going – I'm, you know, whenever the government gets involved in promoting anything, it becomes a benefit in the government promotion. And I might as well just call him king. So I, you know, I I can understand that uh, going down the road of defining what intellectual property is and how far to the point that, you know, Mickey Mouse gets to be, you can't draw it forever. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if the benefit of having an intellectual property right, well, well, you have an intellectual property right, but they have intellectual property enforcement of your ownership or something by a government on an idea in the long term benefits humanity, the individual, anybody, freedom. I, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, we haven't really had that opportunity except in the uh, early days where, you, you know, Og made wheel. You know, and everybody, you go, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that idea. 
well, if we had it back then, would we have more wheels, less wheel? We never have invented the wheel without property rights. Oh, we didn't have one. I mean, you just had a utilitarian use of it. I mean, these are the kind of questions that just, you know, pop off on top of my head. So now we're looking uh, to Stefan Kinsella, K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A law.com, which is a patent attorney that made a case for intellectual property and had his mind changed. So let's go ahead and pick up where we left off. Stefan, go ahead and help me out. Yeah, I mean, look, we libertarians look at things in a principled way, right? We try to look at the right and wrong of things. I mean, when we start talking about giving the government power to try to give the right incentives this way and that way, I mean, it's obviously unworkable. And, and uh, you know, the idea that we would only have innovation with, without these government monopolies is ridiculous. They're, they're only a couple of hundred years old in a systematic way, and, of course, we had progress before then. And if you think about it in a sort of general way, what these laws are opposed to is what we call learning, right, or the distribution of knowledge. When people talk to each other, when they observe things, when they study things, when they learn about all the uh, immense accomplishments of humanity over our, our history, this is learning. This is a good thing, right? There's nothing wrong with the transmission of knowledge. There's nothing wrong with the preservation of knowledge. There's nothing wrong with the spread of the body of human knowledge and its gradual increase over time. The more things we learn, the more things that are passed down from one person to the other, from one generation to the next, the, the, the more sophisticated the body of knowledge that we have that we can rely on, when we make decisions, right? When we decide what ends we choose and what means we can choose, uh, we can use to achieve these ends. The, so this, this is, is the point. This is the point that I was making in the first hour. I was trying to share with the audience my own personal experience on how, you know, if if you have all these controls on the information that you get, um, uh, who can and can't uh, put a link to some other site? Who can and can't um, send a PDF to a friend of a book on the whatever? You share peer-to-peer for movies and, and music and on and on and on. I'm, you know, I'm going... Where, where, who, where's the harm? And, and so, of course, someone will say, hey, man, I, I own that song in perpetuity forever and always, amen, and I'm the Beatles, and gosh darn it, you can't play that unless I get a cut. Right. And I'm going, all right, well, you know, is there a benefit in having such a rule or law? Right. And I tell you where I come to being a patent attorney, there was an issue that was of interest to me that um, I, I started thinking along these lines, and I'm going, all right. Somebody out there is working on fill-in-the-blank uh, invention, you know, the 100-mile-per-gallon uh, carburetor, the mm-hmm. zero-point energy, Dela Tesla, I can push a button, make enough, I'm off-grid, whatever thing. And there was a gentleman, his name was uh, Moray, I think it was. I was watching a, a DVD one time, and he would go to the patent office and look for certain traits that he knew people were trying to patent ideas about producing zero-point energy. And he was going, you know, I, I, they can't patent that because they won't let them. They will not let them patent. It works, don't work, who cares? But they won't let you have a patent on something you say is a perpetual energy, whatever. He goes, but I knew what to look for. They would say, you know, a temperature thing, this or that. or And I go look for that stuff. Aha, I recognize this device. I go talk to the guy, try and get the information and such. So then I started thinking, I'm going, is it really at a point to where the only people that would create such a device are those that would do it only if they could get a patent? 
And I'm going, would they create it anyway? Are, are they always looking for the profit motive? Are they looking for the intellectual property right that would give them, make them wealthy? Well, maybe. I mean, you know, that's kind of what the concept was in the Constitution. We're going to provide for patents and so on so that it will be an encouragement of these people to do whatever they get some kind of benefit from it. But then I'm going, you know, I'm. where is the detriment in all of the improvements of ideas, and especially with the Internet and all the sharing and the overlap, you got so much opportunity to expand the wealth of knowledge that we all have access to. That in and of itself is of enormous wealth, not only to individuals, but to humanity in general and the planet. So I'm going, if you got government out of the way of me being able to make the better mousetrap using whatever intellectual uh, advancement there is out there, would we all not be better served? And I bet you that was kind of the argument Jefferson and these guys were making, but we kind of will pay, I don't know, some homage to some traditional whatever. So that is where we're really at. Is I, I, mean, I think that Jefferson and the founders were leery of government monopolies, but they figured this was a systematic, institutionalized thing that was out in the open, and you'd have an office of you know public officials who could approve these inventions. It wasn't just for specialized favorites of the king. Now this was open to democracy. In a way, this is a case where democracy has made things worse off, right? Whereas before, these monopolies were sporadic and sort of um, sparsed out and seen as monopolies. Now they're sort of democratized and available to the masses for just, uh, you know, applying through the bureaucracy for your for your rights. Um, but, you know, the, the funny thing is, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty absurd to try to defend IP on natural rights grounds. So most defenses of it are on these utilitarian grounds. Well, that's but, why I'm trying to get to that point. I'm trying to go, <laughs> are we better served as, you know, is there a utilitarian case to be made for having intellectual property monopolized in the hands of somebody with a seal from the king that then it's not available to everybody to improve everything? And all i got to do is look at open source software. I mean... Well, here, here's what we know. We know. We know a few things. We know that there's innovation without patents and without copyrights. Maybe there's not as much, but there's definitely innovation. So you can't say there's none. You can say there's not enough, but if you say there's not enough, then maybe you want to advocate the government uh, having a, some kind of prize board to give people millionaire grants when they come up with great ideas, which some libertarians actually favor ridiculously. Okay, So we know that. We also know that there's a cost to the patent and the copyright system, a big cost. And we also know that it's subject to abuse. For example, there are literally books banned in the name of copyright, literally. People, uh, Susan Boyle was literally prevented recently from singing uh, a song on this, uh, on this television show because they couldn't clear the copyright. I mean, people's actions and their use of their bodies is literally prevented, almost like slavery. The, uh, the, the former CEO of HP, this herd guy, is, may be prevented from taking a job with um, with this other company, Oracle, because of trade secret law. So these the consequences are, are severe and dire. So we know these things. We also know that the advocates of IP justify these things on the grounds that it will make us all better off. But you know what we know? They haven't proved their case. In fact, there have been dozens of studies over the years, and they all that I've seen, they all are either inconclusive or they conclude that patent and copyright laws reduce overall innovation. So in other words, they impose a cost on society 
And in exchange for that, we get reduced innovation and reduced creativity. You know, and that can really more easily, that case can be made when you're dealing with the speed of the Internet, open source software, adding on to other people's ideas. And we can see it much easier now than we probably had in the past. We'll talk about it more when we come back here on Declare Your Independence in just a little bit. And now, live from the studios of Freedoms Phoenix, Ernest Hancock. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down. When the man comes around. Oh, and the man be a coming around. That's what we're talking about here on Declare Your Independence of Me. Ernest Hancock, my special guest, Stefan Kinsella. K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A, Kinsella Law. Dot com. This is a good resource for you guys. We have it up on Freedoms Phoenix. You go to today's archive, get all the goodies and a lot of the articles and stuff that uh, Stefan has written and been a big impact on the readers. And I'll be, you know, looking forward to reading all your goodies. But I want to go ahead and uh, we're, we're talking about. We're gonna. We asked Stefan if he could stay over at the top of the hour because I know we're not going to finish to my satisfaction. And he's agreed to do that. So thank you, Steve. Sure. So what we're going to go ahead and do. Is just summarize real quick where we're at. We have the idea that we can, I, I, we would, you know, can we call it an axiom? I, I guess we can. It's a self-evident truth that, you know, if I'm holding on to something I made, it's mine. I got it. I, I acquired it. I produced it, whatever. I can hold it, and it's mine. Mine, 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 mine. You know, property rights in uh, an object, property rights in land, that's mine. Now, of course, you can argue about how you got to rent it through property taxes of the government and everything, that's a whole other issue. But the concept of property rights, this is, you know, the, the per, that's why it's declare your independence with Ernest Hancock. Because Declaration of Independence is very clear. The purpose of government, defend individual rights. If they're not doing that, then they're bad guys, okay? Whoever, you can call them whatever and wrap them whatever colored flag, doesn't matter. They're taking your stuff without your permission, bad guys, okay? So you know what I think about the government there. So what happens is, is that now we've got to the concept of, all right, we're going to have this government protect my property rights. Well, then they, in, even in the Constitution, and as you alluded to, you know, the, the founders were kind of, eh, we're, we're not, you know, big giant falling on a sword on this one, but, you know, we'll go ahead with this utilitarian kind of argument. But the idea was, is that by encouraging people to get patents on inventions, encouraging people to have copyright and trademark and all this other stuff, then they would be able to uh, derive some kind of financial benefit from it and be an encouragement for them to make and do more goodies. All right. That's so correct. I can I can understand that concept. So but is it really a natural right? Well, we've made the argument that not really. I mean, it's an idea. You're patenting someone's idea that somebody else can come up with that idea independently. Nope, you can't do it. You can't produce it. You can't sell it. You can't because somebody else thought of it first, and the way you thought of it is too close to the way he thought of it, even though it's different and you're using plastic instead of carbon fiber and and whatever And because we said. okay. And then you get in there calling Stefan to be the patent attorney and go defend me. So I'm I, I understand this. Now we're getting into a little bit of the utilitarian argument is that are we really, in the long term, 
better served as individuals and as humanity by having this concept of intellectual property. And that's kind of where we're going now. And I kind of want to hear what your uh, summarized comments on that is. Well, so I would say this. Look, when you and I or when normal people discuss principles and morals and norms, you know, you can argue that abortion is wrong, abortion is right, murder is wrong, murder is okay in some cases. It's not an empirical or utilitarian argument, and we can come up with reasons for that, religious reasons or moral reasons or practical reasons or, or traditional reasons, whatever. But when you make an explicitly utilitarian argument, when you say we need to have this intervention, this temporary limitation on people's rights for this benefit, this, this practical sort of wealth-based or money-based benefit, then it's impinging on you to come up with, you know, to satisfy the burden of proof. And you could almost forgive the founders for, you know, they only had like a 10-year or something monopoly for copyrights. It was very short. So you could understand they would think, well, it's going to have some benefit for sure and maybe not a big cost. And even if it's a cost, it's not going to last that long. Well, now you have copyrights lasting literally over 100 years. I'm not kidding you. Okay? It's crazy. And you have patents lasting, say, approximately 17 years now, but in the Internet age, that's an infinity, right? Because patent, you know, ideas are over in five years sometimes now. So basically it's the entire life of the idea. So you would think that they would have come up with some evidence by now to prove their case, but they have not. I mean, look, I, I, let me just read you just two sentences from this guy, Fritz Macklop, who's a respected economist. This is back in 1958. He did an entire study commissioned by Congress. And he said, he concluded, no economist on the basis of present knowledge could state with certainty that the patent system as it now operates confers a net benefit or net loss in society. And then he talks about the assumption. And then he says, if we did not have a patent system, it would be irresponsible on the basis of our current knowledge to, in- to recommend instituting one. Okay, so I mean, even now, this is just a mainstream sort of economist looking at the si- situation. And there has been nothing since then. All the studies that they keep doing conclude the opposite of what the utilitarian advocates say. Now, as a libertarian who's a principled libertarian, I would say I don't accept utilitarian arguments in the first place because there are, there are at least two problems with them. Number one, as we know from Austrian economics, values are not measurable by numbers. Okay? Values are subjective, and they're just rankings. I prefer this over that. You can't put a number on it. And even if you could, you can't compare them between people. And even if you could do that, it's still wrong to take from me to give to you. Even if you argue that what you took from me hurts me less than it benefited the guy I gave it to. I mean, that is theft. You know, we have some principles here. We're against theft. So the utilitarian arguments fail, and they're bankrupt in the first place. Okay. I'm with you. I just want to make sure that we can, uh, I can repeat this mm-hmm. in the future and take Stefan's position, okay? okay? So let's go ahead and make sure I can get my rhetoric down because it's all about bumper stickers, man. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so I'm, um, it's easy to make the argument or easier. I mean, of course, you got some collectivists that would make, uh, you know, nobody owns anything. It belongs to everybody and you're not using it. It's mine now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so let's go ahead and operate from the concept that, uh, I make something, I purchase something, I got something, I mm-hmm. created something, mm-hmm. and I'm holding my hand, it's mine. Mm-hmm. Then I have something that is, uh, I, I made something, I created something, mm-hmm. it's mine, but it can be duplicated without yes. any detriment to me. Yes. 
So, I mean, that's really what we're talking about. Yes. So we have, and that takes the form in a, a lot of different areas. I mean, yeah. it's uh, music, and, and the solution has been a lot of people go, well, how would they ever? Well, it always happens. That it's where the real money is made. Merchandising. I mean, you right. know, it's it's like uh, you know, you watch uh, Spaceballs, the movie is a spoof on Star Wars, and they get you know, you know, yogurt, you know, the Yoda character, Mel Brooks, in there, and he goes, "Oh yeah, we're 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 gonna meet all again in Spaceballs too, the search for more money." I mean, you know, yeah. so it was. He go opens up his little shop there, and it has Spaceballs, the lunchbox, Spaceballs, the coloring book, Spaceballs, the flamethrower. I mean, you know, it, it's it's the merchandising. That's tangible stuff, okay? Yeah. Now, the actual replication or duplication copying of the movie Spaceballs, that in itself is just another marketing tool for them to go buy more merchandise. Look, I, I, w- I would say this. Look, I often get this. When I, when I point out the, the problems with IP, you, you'll get this sort of knee-jerk response. Well, how would I make money? And my response, my first response is, the fact that you have a question is not a political argument. You know, I mean, this is the job of entrepreneurs to figure out how to make money. We, we're, contrary to the IP advocates' demonization of, of, the, of, of us property libertarians, we are not opposed to the intellect. We are not opposed to ideas. Ideas are essentially important. As I explained earlier, they are what guides human action. Okay, But because they're important, then they can spread um, to, to people. But people have always had to deal with sort of the problem of marketing in a world where some things are easily reproducible and some things are not. This is what competition on the market is. When a new store opens up with a new type of product, or let's say a grocery store has wide aisles that the customers like, you know what's going to happen? Emulation. The other grocery stores are going to start emulating that feature. And there is no objective way to draw a line between that kind of good emulative behavior and what the patent and copyright laws seek to protect. I mean, I'm telling you, this stuff is completely arbitrary. Uh, it's just stuff that Congressman wrote down on, on a piece of paper. It's not arbitrary. It is not objective at all. And the, and, and the way the courts and the Patent and Copyright Office interpret these things is almost completely arbitrary because these are just decreed arbitrary laws and regulations and rules. Well, as a patent attorney, as you're going through these things, when you have something, where is the line between someone else's improvement or innovation and, you know, after a while, you got millions and millions and millions of patents on file. I mean, they, yeah. can, they can say anything is like something else because of the shape. I mean, you know, I, I'm, well, I, is, where does you know, it stop? The, the, the problem with, with IP law is that there are so many problems that I could explain to you on so many different levels. But whenever you talk to these sort of snaky IP advocates, every time you point one of these blatant problems out, like let's say I point out that, well, you know, you happen to favor uh, the, f- the fact that there's a natural right to the first guy who comes up with something gets the right to it. Are you aware that in the American system it's, it's the other way around? Well, then they'll say, well, I'm not in favor of that. Or if you say, well, are you aware that if someone independently invents something, even if they invent it before, before you patented it, they can be prohibited by an injunction from a court from using their process? Then the, the guy will say, well, I'm not in favor of that. Well, then you say, well, what are you in favor of? They'll say, well, I'm not an IP expert. I don't know. So basically, they don't know what they're in favor of. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate you staying over because um, I, I think, you know, from our conversation, we brought up a lot of things that people can think about, and then we can start to summarize into a, a philosophy that's well understood by people that have never even thought of this before. 
And maybe we'll get into Mickey Mouse. How long does Disney get to own Mickey Mouse? I don't know. You know, we'll, we'll find out. And we'll talk about piracy of music and videos. You know, where, where does it end? Where does it stop? You know, we have to change our entire concept of what is and is not property that can be protected by the force of government or should be. You know, these are the questions that get down to the nitty-gritty here on Declare Your Independence of Me. Ernest Hancock and my guest, Stefan Kinsella, will be right back.